Well, amen. I want to start by saying that was an absolutely outstanding presentation uh, by my friend Andy Woods. I think uh, everybody needs to get a copy of that. And uh, you need to show that far and wide. Show it at your small group setting. Show it at your church. Uh, give it to people. Uh, I don't know if it's on DVD. I know it's going to be on the internet, YouTube or something. But uh, that information is, is, is really important to understand. It, it uh, correlates well with a lot of the stuff that we've been doing at Not By Works for the last uh, several years. And uh, I just really want to commend him for... Uh, for that, really, really excellent. Uh, also, wanted to mention, uh, you know, he talked about his slides. We've had a policy at Not By Works for since we started uh, 22 years ago that if any, if you see any of our slides, and I notice I, I see people often taking pictures of the screen everywhere I go, and, and, and not just my slides, but other speakers' slides, a pretty common occurrence. But we want you to know if there's anything you see on our slides, just email us, pick up our card at the Not By Works table. We'll be glad to send you the PowerPoints. Uh, I can remember early on in my uh, ministry, in fact, when I was in seminary, so that was 32 years ago, um, having a professor back then, they didn't have PowerPoint computers, but it was all the overhead uh, projector transparencies. And I had a professor that uh, used some really good cartoons and illustrations and things on his overheads. And I remember going up after class one time and asking him if I could get copies of that. And he kind of got a grumpy look on his face and said, no, you get collect yours the same way I got mine over the years. And I made a mental note to myself right then, if I ever get to the point where someone actually wants something that I'm teaching, I'm, I'm going to offer it and give it away. We, the goal is to get the message out. And uh, so we don't copyright any of our slides or anything. Um, we do have a chart book out there that get, lists our top 100 uh, charts and diagrams and illustrations that I've used for 32 years. Of ministry, uh, we sell that, and it's available digitally as well with all the PowerPoints. So you have all of, or at least the top hundred. Uh, but if there's something you see, we, we're happy to email it to you. And I appreciated hearing Andy say that uh, as well. So just wanted to make a quick word of introduction before we dive in today. Last time I knew I had a ton of material to get to, so I just jumped right in and still ran out of time. Uh, but today, not quite as pressed for time. So I <clears throat> wanted to mention that uh, at Not By Works Ministries, if you sign up for our newsletter, all of our presentations, and we do three or four videos a week from my home church and other speaking engagements, we do podcasts, uh, all of those uh, are available through the Not By Works website or the podcast through any of the podcast providers, uh, whatever you use, you'll find Not By Works Ministries there. Uh, but we'd love to have you sign up for our newsletter. So there's a little card on our table, if you haven't done so already, uh, please stop by and if you're so inclined, give us your email and uh, you can kind of stay in touch with what the Lord's doing through uh, this ministry. And also want to say a huge uh, hello to our home church, Plum Creek Chapel in uh, Denver, Colorado area. If you're ever in that Denver metro area, come see us on a Sunday. Love to have you there. When I'm not out traveling, I'm in the pulpit uh, there. Sometimes people are confused because Not By Works Ministries is based out of Illinois, where we've spent a total of eight years in our life, but we actually live in Colorado. So uh, that's kind of the, the, the difference uh, there. So yeah, definitely come by and see us before the conference ends if you haven't already loved to uh, love to say hello. So I think that's all of the preliminary stuff. I'll say a little bit more at the end about some of the resources that uh, we might want to recommend related to this particular um, uh, topic. But the topic at hand for this session is how is God's grace illustrated through uh, the history of his dealings with Israel? And I'll confess right up front, I am not, uh, have not been actively involved, I uh, haven't had the pleasure in, of being actively involved in Jewish ministry, but I have a lot of friends who are. I serve uh, as president of Cornerstone Bible Institute in South Dakota, and we have a faculty member there who has spent, in fact, two faculty members who spent many years in Jewish uh, ministry. And uh, one of them heard I was going to be speaking on this topic, and he gave me a Jewish joke to start the conference with, so to start this message with. So... I only mention that in case the, the joke bombs, so you know not to blame me. Um, if I thought it was going to go over well, I would have taken full and total credit for it. Uh, but anyway, so a Jewish man uh, during Passover took his Passover lunch to eat outside in the park. And he sat down on a bench and, and he began eating. And a little while later, another fellow approaches him and the fellow's wearing some dark glasses, has a white cane and a dog, and obviously recognizes 
that this fellow right away is blind, but this blind man sits down next to him on the park bench. Well, the Jewish man eating his lunch started to feel a little neighborly and kindly, and he, and he thought, well, I'm going to share my food with him. So he passes a sheet of his matzah to the blind man. Well, the blind man takes it and begins to rub his fingers over the matzah cracker, looking more and more puzzled, does this for a few moments. Finally, he turns toward the Jewish man and exclaims, who wrote this nonsense? So, well, good. Uh, forget what I said about my friend. I made that up. So, Well, a, a look at Israel's past and future reveals a remarkable picture of God's amazing grace. You know, as, as conservative, biblically-based dispensationalists who believe in a literal, historical, grammatical approach to interpreting the Bible, we, of course, recognize the significance of Israel and God's plan of the ages and the future uh, for national Israel. We know that Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, will rule the world from the rebuilt temple on David's throne in Jerusalem someday. He'll rule in perfect peace and justice, as many of the speakers have been talking about, with a rod of iron, when all the governments shall be upon his shoulders. But I wonder how many of us have ever really stopped to consider how God's eternal attribute of grace is pictured through his relationship with Israel. Uh, you know, the prophet Zechariah tells us that God considers Israel to be the apple of his eye. A lot of people today, especially our friends in the uh, replacement theology camp, I think have missed the point when they think that the church is the be-all, end-all of God's plan. In fact, if you read uh, Romans 11, you find out that the church, is, is uh, as it relates to Israel, is essentially just the other woman trying to provoke Israel uh, to jealousy. God's not through with Israel, and there's a future for national Israel. But Zechariah goes on to describe the return of Christ to inaugurate the long-awaited promised kingdom as a time when God will pour out the spirit of grace on Israel. Now, the coming kingdom that we look so forward to, you know, Dr. Woods finished with that great passage in Hebrews. I've been teaching through Hebrews in our home church, just about finished. Uh, with it after the, being there for the last year. We're in chapter 13 this week, tomorrow. And uh, the whole book of Hebrews is about this coming kingdom and the anticipation of it. In fact, in chapter 2, he establishes early on to his audience, the author does, that this is uh, the kingdom to come is about that which we speak. And he's talking about the future time as a motivation to endure trials. And I think as things go on more and more in our own culture, uh, with the globalist uh, uprising and the ultimate one world system that possibly might even be in place before the rapture. I mean, the Bible only says the Antichrist will take the helm of it after the rapture. We may be living in a one world system, and in many ways, de facto, we already are. But as we face more and more trying times, we need to use the coming kingdom as a, as a motivation. And it, 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 it constitutes the culmination, the climax of God's expression of grace. So I'd like to just spend our time in this session diving into the scriptures and taking a look at how God's relationship with Israel reveals a remarkable picture of his amazing grace. We'll start with grace defined. Uh, we have to make sure we're all on the same page about what we mean by this term grace. You know, I find that grace is one of those words that everyone knows what it means, right? You know, it's, a, it's what you say before a meal or it's a beautiful ballet routine or it's just general kindness. I read a short book just recently, uh, came across it, and the title got my attention, and I read it was just maybe 100 pages, an old book from the 1950s, if I recall. I can't remember the author, but the title was Grace is Not a Blue-Eyed Blonde. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's a good, that's a good title. Um, we, we must always define biblical words with biblical definitions. So at, a, at the risk of mastering the obvious, especially in this biblically astute crowd, let's take just a moment to uh, talk about grace defined. In the Greek, the word in the New Testament is charis. As we know, it's used 155 times in the New Testament, meaning unmerited favor or blessing. In the Old Testament, it's the word thane, meaning grace or favor. 
used 70 times, most often translated favor, but quite often translated grace. So we can say that grace is undeserved blessing. Grace is undeserved blessing. Now, it's probably easiest for us to understand grace when we define it in its relation to two of its counterparts, justice and mercy. So let's put it in perspective. Justice is getting what you deserve. Justice is getting what you deserve. Often we'll use the phrase in a certain context, justice was served. Well, what that means is that something ended up fair and just, and it was what was to be expected. When, we, when a criminal gets off scot-free, we feel that's an injustice. When uh, someone is punished, we feel that is justice. So justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy, of course, is not getting the punishment that you deserve. Mercy is not getting the punishment you deserve. And so by contrast to justice and mercy, grace is getting blessing that you don't deserve. I've used this illustration often, and it's, it's, I learned it many, many years ago, and it kind of helped crystallize in my mind this notion of justice, mercy, and grace. But if you were driving along on the freeway and, and maybe uh, exceeding the speed limit more than you should, and all of a sudden you see the flashing lights of a patrolman behind you, and uh, your heart sinks like every good, red-blooded, God-fearing dispensationalist, and you begin to think, oh, you know, what have I done? You look at the speedometer, you realize you're going... 12 miles over the speed limit. So you pull over, and uh, as you're waiting for what seems like an interminable amount of time for that officer to get out of the patrol car, of course, what he's really doing is running your plates and all that to make sure you're not some terrorist or whatever. And, um, and, and you're, what are you doing while you're waiting? Of course, you're praying. <laughs> praying like you've never played, prayed uh, before. And what are we praying for? We're praying that we get a warning, right? Um, so then he comes up, you give him your license and your registration, and then he goes back to you know, the car and you wait another long time. And now you're really picking in uh, to high gear. I mean, you're praying ways you've never prayed before. You're praying in tongues and you didn't even know there was such a thing. And uh, so finally he comes back up. Now if at that moment he were to hand you a citation, that would be justice, right? You were speeding. The law says you broke the law, you deserve a ticket. But if he were to say, I'm only going to give you a warning, well, that would be mercy, right? The withholding of judgment, withholding of punishment. But now, if he were, and I've never had this happen, I mean, not that I get stopped a lot, as far as you know, but I've never had that happen. If he were to pull out his wallet and hand you a $100 bill, that would be grace, See, grace is getting something you don't deserve. It's a gift. So justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting a gift that you don't deserve. And these three uh, qualities all coalesce at the cross. Now let's take a look at John 3.16, and I think you'll see what I mean. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, in giving his only son to die in our place on the cross, God was satisfying the just demands of his nature. Justice was served. God had plainly stated that the penalty of sin is death. Go back to the garden, Genesis chapter 2. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely what? Die. And so, you know, not to get too far adrift here, but a lot of times, People, in, in, when you think of, in terms of skeptics and, and, and people that aren't believers and that really often shake their fist at, at heaven, uh, they think uh, that God is inherently unfair and how can God send anyone to hell, right? The fact of the matter is God's not sending anyone to hell. In fact, he's doing as we shall see and as we shall especially see as we trace Israel's history, doing anything and everything he can to keep people out of hell. Uh, our latest book that we just wrote last year is called The Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell and The One Reason No One Ever Has to. And in it, I begin in the preface by explaining that ultimately the one reason people go to hell is unbelief. Uh, I think, I can't remember if it was Andy or Tommy or somebody just recently in their message here at the conference talked about that. You know, if you die in your sin, if you, if you don't believe that I'm here, you will die in your sins, Jesus said. Uh, so 
But what, what would keep someone from believing the gospel? What, why is it that the, the very thing we need the most, the most valuable thing, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, people reject? Well, that's what I have 10 chapters talking about, different things that keep people from believing the gospel. And one of those is bitterness, anger, hurt, tragedy, pain. There, there are all kinds of uh, reasons, and this is just my top 10 list in that book. But, you know, it's as if people think that when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, um, that they expected God to react something like this, for him to say, ah, no big deal, <laughs> never mind, don't worry about it, I was just kidding about that death thing. It's like they thought God should have winked and nodded at sin. But think about the implications of that. If God had winked and nodded at sin in that moment, early on in creation, it would have proven definitively that he was a fickle, unfaithful, untrustworthy God whose word could not be counted on. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God was being God. And I don't know about you, but I'm glad he didn't wink and nod at sin. Because, of course, we know the rest of the story. But the New Testament confirms this same principle. Paul put it this way in Romans 5, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men, because all sin, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, going back to John 3.16, we see justice coming at the cross. Because of sin, someone had to die. The blood had to be shed. And that someone was Jesus. Justice is served. The penalty was paid. God's wrath was satisfied. God could not wink and nod at sin. And because justice has been served, grace and mercy now become possible. But only to those who receive Christ's payment by faith. Notice what the verse goes on to say here. Jesus says, whoever believes in him. One of the 160 plus times that the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone. I think Andy mentioned that maybe yesterday or today. I can't remember. In one of my books, Getting the Gospel Wrong, we have an appendix at the back of the book that lists every occurrence of faith as a condition for eternal life. The, the Bible could not be more clear about that. It's the one and only means of receiving eternal life, faith alone in Christ alone. And then, one, so, so Christ's death satisfied the wrath of God, but it didn't save anybody. It just made it possible for people to be saved. Otherwise, we, we'd be universalists, right? But there are people who will spend eternity, a Christless eternity, in a literal place of torment called hell. Not because God hasn't made the provision, but because they never received that provision. A gift has to be received. If I offer you a gift and you don't take it, I can't force it upon you. Forced love is no love at all. Right? A gift must be freely offered and freely uh, received. But once you receive that gift by faith alone and Christ alone, then two things happen, according to John 3.16. First of all, you'll not perish. You'll not perish. That's mercy the withholding of punishment. We should perish, we should face eternal punishment for, our, for the penalty of our sin, but we don't. That penalty's been waived. It's like we've been given you know, the, the proverbial warning for, by the police, so we don't have to pay the ticket because it's been paid for us, right? But that's not the only thing uh, that happens. But let me, let, me, let me camp out here for just a second longer. In John 5.25, we've looked at this verse a lot. It's been up on the screen a lot. It's one of my favorite verses, and I appreciate other uh, people uh, mentioning it. But Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, who, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. Shall not come into judgment. We, we don't face condemnation once we've received the free gift. We've passed from death to life. We've been adopted into the family of God. We've been born again. We've been uh, declared righteous positionally. I mean, Lewis Berry Chafer lists 33 things that happen instantaneously the moment faith meets the gospel. And, and, and all of those things are invisible, theological things, positional things. And so we, we won't 
face judgment. But again, back to John 3.16, uh, by faith we receive mercy, the withholding of punishment, but we also see grace because when you believe in him, not only do you not perish, but you have everlasting life. That's the gift. That's grace. That's the undeserved favor and blessing. A free, undeserved gift. So not only do we not go to hell, mercy, but we also receive the free gift of eternal life. Eternal life is not something you get when you die. Eternal life is something you get when you believe the gospel. So if you've trusted in Jesus Christ and him alone right here today, you've passed from death to life. You'll never come into judgment and you have eternal life. Just so happens that the first so many years of it will be lived in this old sin-stricken world where Satan is the prince of the power of the air and, and, uh, and our bodies are deteriorating in the flesh. And, and, but someday, if the Lord comes back or if the Lord tarries his coming and we go the way of all flesh, we will spend the rest of our eternal life in glory. When this mortal puts on immortality, this corruption puts on incorrupt, you know, this corruptible puts on incorruption and we'll be with the Lord. Uh, so eternal life is a present possession. It's not a future possibility. You know, Jesus said in John 10, 10, 28, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. And it's actually a, a double negative there in the Greek. It's like, if you translate it with wooden literalness, it would be shall no never perish. And uh, we have a, uh, Andy and I have a friend who's written a book called Shall Never Perish Forever, kind of a play on that Greek construction. The idea is here, it's absolutely secure. Jesus did not say in that moment, if you believe in me, I give you the possibility of eternal life or the prospect for eternal life or the potential for eternal life. He says, I give you eternal life. So at that punctiliar moment in time when faith meets the gospel, we have received eternal life. Now, if it could ever be lost again, then it's got the worst name Jesus could ever give something because it was never really eternal, but he calls it eternal. So there we see this notion of justice. He gave his only begotten son. Mercy, if you believe in him, you shall never perish. And grace, but have everlasting life. And grace, by definition, is free like all gifts. If it's not free, it's not grace. And if it's not grace, it's not free. If I offer you a gift and I extend the gift to you, and I say, uh, for example, uh, Dr. Ice, uh, happy birthday, here's a gift. And just as he's about to take it, I pull it back and I say, now wait a minute, just wanna make sure you understand the terms of this contract. Before you take this gift, here's what I expect you to do. That's no longer a gift. Now it's become a bilateral quid pro quo, right? But eternal life is not a bilateral contract. It's a unilateral gift. There's one giver, one receiver. To as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become uh, the children of God. So if it's not free, it's not grace. Now, we don't like that word free because we've been conditioned by so much bad gospel teaching that somehow salvation is something we have to bring something to the table to get. <laughs> we've got to do our part, Right? We've got to commit, forsake, surrender, promise, pledge, make him Lord, turn from this, forsake that. We've got to do all this front-loading types of things. I mean, surely you can't get something as valuable as eternal life for free, right? Uh, I mean, I don't know how many uh, people there are across this uh, great land sitting in Baptist churches on Sundays singing Jesus paid it all, but thinking Jesus paid most of it because that's the way most people live their lives, right? But he didn't. He paid it all. Right, And so uh, if it's not free, it's not grace. And Paul uh, talks about this in uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, well-known passage, for by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast. And we even see him uh, in a sort of tautology or redundancy calling it free here in Romans three twenty four, being justified freely by his grace. Now he didn't have to qualify that. The term grace means free. <laughs> but it just is a way of emphasizing that fact. And often the Bible does that. You know, one of Howard Hendricks's rules for observation is to look for things that are repeated for emphasis. Well, he's repeating this notion here in, in Romans 3, uh, 25, and again in Romans 5, 
15. But the free gift is not like the offense. Uh, for if by the one man's offense, Adam, many died, much more by the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. So that's grace. And I just want to mention we have a free uh, video, one hour video that we just produced. It's available on our website called What is Free Grace? There's a lot of confusion about that term. And we kind of get, dive into a little bit about the movement and some of the aberrations of those who are part of the so-called free grace movement. But we try to just say, what do we mean by the biblical phrase free grace? And it indeed is a biblical phrase. So I encourage you to check that out at notbyworks.org. But so at the cross, we see God's justice, mercy, and grace all coming together, right? He gave his only begotten son. That's justice. The payment was made. That whoever believes in him should not perish, that's mercy, the withholding of punishment, but have everlasting life, and that's grace. That's grace. So Calvary is the consummate expression of God's grace. It's like grace in high death. Uh, as we shall see in a moment, grace didn't come into existence at the cross. Sometimes we talk about the age of grace as if grace was foreign to the Old Testament. No, God's eternal attributes are just that, eternal. God's a God of grace from the very beginning, right? But what we see at Calvary is a clear, high-definition, redigitized, remastered color picture of grace at the cross. John tells us in his gospel, and of his fullness we have all received grace for grace. John was essentially saying that grace follows grace as ocean wave follows wave washing over us. The NIV paraphrases this verse, one blessing after another. Nasby has grace upon grace. In other words, the fullest, clearest expression of God's grace is Jesus Christ, his son. That's what John meant when he said grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not came into existence, but were highlighted, perfectly pictured. Uh, earlier, John wrote in the immediately preceding uh, passage, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So in Christ, as Paul says, we have the exceeding riches of his grace. And when it comes to the history of Israel, or uh, to borrow Arnie Fruchtenbaum's phrase, Israelology, the study of Israel, what we see is grace all over the place. What I'd like to do next, now that we've defined grace, is, is take a look at grace developed. And we want to go all the way back, even before the birth of Israel, once again, to revisit the situation in the garden. So we see in Genesis chapter 3, God talking to the serpent after the fall of man. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now this uh, particular Hebrew word has puzzled uh, some scholars for many, many years because of what it means. You'll, I'm reading here from the New King James. You'll notice it's capitalized, but the Hebrew word is zerah, which means seed from a male or semen. It's used 229 times in Hebrew. Some modern translations will translate it offspring, but it, it always refers to the seed of a male. So it's strange indeed for Moses here, of course, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, but nevertheless to say her seed. And that would have really caught the attention of the original Hebrew readers. Uh, but we have to remember, Moses was the human author, but of course God is the ultimate author, capital A, and when the Holy Spirit guided Moses along to write her seed, it was for a reason. Uh, there's a, and, and you're kind of hinted at this when, as I mentioned, you see the capitalized S there. Uh, her seed is a veiled reference to the virgin birth. So very early on, we see that God's going to provide an answer to this problem. We see that even though Satan thinks of the world as his domain, and it is for a period of time, that ultimately he's going to be destroyed. And he says, he shall bruise your head, serpent, Satan. You're going to be destroyed. Theologians often call this the protevangelium, the earliest reference to the gospel. Um, and of course, we've talked a lot at this conference about that ultimate coming kingdom when Satan, the beast, and the false prophet cast all to end up together in the lake of fire and Christ comes back and makes all things new and the Bible comes full circle back to a pre-fall Edenic state 
And what a day that'll be. But it all begins right here in Genesis chapter 3. And just a few verses later, we see God's grace uh, pictured in the coverings that God made for Adam and Eve. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin. Now just think about that moment, that picture, as if you were there. And these, this isn't just some words on a page. This is an actual event in human history that occurred. And where did these tunics come from? I mean, Adam and Eve had never seen death. They never had a need for coverings. And after they sinned, their eyes were open and they were ashamed. And in order to provide a covering for Adam and Eve, blood had to be shed, foreshadowing the shed blood of the Lamb of God. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness. As God's plan of the ages moves forward in time, we see God's grace developed in Noah's life. The Bible tells us Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then we pick up the story of God's amazing grace in the life of Israel when we get to Genesis 12 and God's unconditional promise to Abraham. Verse 12, chapter 12, verse 1, God said to Noah, or said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Now we call this the Abrahamic covenant, an unconditional promise. And it's a promise, first of all, about land, to a land that I will show you. So in this foundational, unconditional promise that God made to Abraham, it includes land. We'll come back to that in a second. But then the, the covenant goes on to say, I will make you a great nation. So we see a promise of seed that will come from Abraham. And then we see a promise of blessing. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This covenant with Abraham is unconditional. It's a promise. In Scripture, we see a distinction between conditional and unconditional covenants. A conditional covenant is an if you will, then I will. Its fulfillment depends on the recipient. It's a quid pro quo, a bilateral arrangement. But an unconditional covenant is just an I will. There's no if attached. And its fulfillment depends solely upon the one making the covenant. And when we come to the five biblical covenants, four of them, the foundational one, Abraham, followed up with the land, seed, and blessing covenants, the Davidic and the New Covenant, are all unconditional. The Mosaic Covenant, a rule of law until Christ came, was a conditional covenant. So I want to take a moment to kind of trace this program. You know, It was given to Abraham 2,000 years before Christ, but then it's reiterated and reaffirmed through these three subsequent covenants. The land covenant sometimes called the Palestinian Covenant. And I never can win with that. I don't know about you, uh, Andy, but every time I talk about this, it doesn't matter whether I call it the land covenant or the Palestinian covenant, somebody gets mad and comes up and either emails me or complains. Because, you know, for years, theologians and dispensational camp called it the Palestinian covenant, and then they changed it to the land covenant. So, But you know what I'm talking about here, that covenant that is delineated in Genesis 15 and Deuteronomy 30. Uh, but let's take a closer look at God's gracious covenant program. Again, it started before the law was even given with the Abrahamic covenant. You'll notice down there on this sort of rudimentary timeline, I show the Mosaic covenant as a set-apart covenant because it was just put in place as a rule of law. It was a quid pro quo, a conditional covenant. We're not talking about that. We're talking about his gracious, unconditional covenant program. And again, that covenant program included land, seed, and blessing, according to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, the seed is the great nation. The blessing, spiritual blessing, ultimately uh, will come through the new covenant. And so uh, it was reiterated as time went on through three subsequent covenants. The land covenant, uh, where we see literally the boundaries of the land even given. You know, I don't know how anybody can read through the promises of the Old Testament and come away with the thought that these promises, these prophecies were fulfilled spiritually and they weren't literal. Uh, it's amazing to me how uh, replacement theologians take all of the prophecies related to Christ's first advent literally. He was literally born of a virgin, literally born in, in Bethlehem, and so forth. But when it comes to prophecies related to a second advent, they sweep it all aside as if it's some giant metaphor. So, you know, the last nine chapters of Ezekiel are all just one giant metaphor. <laughs> uh, when it reads, more like an architectural blueprint. Uh, so we see the land promise. Now, uh, a lot of people have uh, mention this, but just to uh, talk about it once more in this context, 
you know, you see on the screen there, modern day borders of Israel, and the blue outline represents um, at least Feinberg's re representation of the ultimate land that was promised to Israel. You know, Kaiser thought it was about 10,000 square miles. I think Feinberg, it was closer to 300,000 uh, square miles. That's the majority view among dispensationalists. But even though we might quibble over the precise boundary, everyone can surely agree that Israel is never fully inhabited. They've had the rights to it, according to Joshua, but they've never fully inhabited the land that has been unconditionally a promise to them. And so then we see the, uh, the Davidic covenant given in 2 Samuel chapter 7, emphasizing and reaffirming the seed promises. And again, you think about this from David's perspective. If God is promising that your house, your kingdom, and your throne shall be forever, I cannot conceive of the notion that David, listening to that, thought that somehow Christ was going to reign metaphorically in his heart. <laughs> to David, the terms house and kingdom and throne meant something. They meant something tangible, brick and mortar. And, uh, and then it was reiterated further through another covenant, the new covenant, emphasizing the spiritual blessings, when ultimately we're told, God says, I will be their God and they shall be my people, which this will be fulfilled ultimately in the kingdom. You see the return to this language in Revelation chapter 21. It's a unique terminology that speaks to the once and for all final ultimate intimacy that comes from knowing the Father. So if you look at this, you know, structure here, all of this is the unconditional promise of God. And it's all in place. You know, by the time you get to the New Testament, uh, the new covenant is ratified at Calvary through the shed blood of Christ. The, the program is signed, sealed, and delivered. It just hasn't been inaugurated yet. So then as we go through the progress of Revelation, we see the, the mystery of the church something previously unrevealed, not ever mentioned in the Old Testament in God's plan. It wasn't a surprise to God. This was part of his plan all along. But he reminds us that the law was our tutor until Christ. It served its purpose. But now Christ has come. And uh, he calls it a mystery in Ephesians chapter 3. You've heard of this dispensation uh, of the grace of God, uh, that Gentiles should be fellow heirs and partakers of this promise. What promise? The ultimate promise gracious covenant promise that God made back in the Old Testament. And so uh, ultimately, someday, or for, or for this period of time, blindness has happened to Israel. God has temporarily set Israel apart. If you think of the world as, as a stage at any given time in human history, there's a certain people group that is center stage, that is God's primary envoy for um, communicating his message. And for hundreds of years, it was Israel. But then when Israel crowned him with thorns, Instead of a king's crown, God set Israel aside, not permanently, as Paul makes clear in Romans 9 through 11, but Israel exited stage left, and now who's in center stage? The church, the body of Christ. And, and there's a distinction between God's program for Israel and God's program for the church. Um, tomorrow I'm speaking on the value of the church as part of my Hebrew series at my church, Plum Creek Chapel, and I'm going to uh, demonstrate five uh, purposes of Israel and biblically and five purposes of, of the church. And, and they're not the same, right? We have a different purpose. But, you know, the church is not the end-all, be-all. Someday the church, too, according to Scripture, is going to exit stage, well, I guess stage up, you know. You're like Peter Pan, you know, we're going to be just flying up. And then guess who enters for the next act? Israel. God is not through with Israel. And, uh, and they're going to finish out Daniel's 490-year plan and prophecy. And then, of course, at the end of that, Christ comes back, as we've talked so much about. But this gracious uh, covenant program will be find its ultimate fulfillment in the kingdom someday, as Paul describes in Romans 11, uh, when the Deliverer comes back, and then all Israel, not just the remnant that is part of this present church age, but the entire nation is going to be... Uh, enter into the kingdom. So really, this covenant program uh, that goes all the way back to Abraham 12 represents Israel's title deed uh, to the land. Now, uh, of course, the battle over the land, as we've talked a lot about, has uh, reached uh, some pretty severe levels recently, and it's been all over the news, but this is nothing new. It's been this way for 73 years since Israel became a nation once again, the modern state of Israel. But we've seen several headlines with you know this latest uh, battle, which was one of the worst we've seen in many years over there. Um, but you know, when you hear the mainstream media talk about whose land is it, 
It's as they talk about it as if it's really an open question. But I don't understand. Uh, it seems to me when it comes to real estate that the title deed really settles the issue, right? And you go back 2,000 years before Christ, and even really before that, you find out whose land it is throughout the Old Testament. And this is just a brief summary. You see it again and again. God referring to it as my land, my land, my land, my land, my land. Everywhere you turn, it's God's land. So God knows the answer to that question. And anybody who knows the Bible should know the answer to that question uh, as well. We could list verses uh, all day. So we've already seen how the land is central to God's foundational covenant with Abraham and this unconditional gracious aspect of it. Um, but I, I, have you ever stopped to think about how the land promise is central to even the Davidic and the new covenants? We kind of tend, especially as dispensationalists, to kind of compartmentalize things. Uh, I mean, I, I find myself every time I'm working on a message sort of getting the shakes if I don't have seven points. And if I have eight, I'm, that's not right. If I have six, I feel uncomfortable, right? I have to have seven points because that's just who we are. Uh, so we tend to think of the land covenant in context of the land promise, the land covenant, uh, but it's reiterated throughout the, all of the covenants. For example, here's Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 10. We think of 12 to 16 as the Davidic covenant. But what do we read in verse 10? They will dwell in a place of their own and move no more. So there's the land element reiterated as part of the Davidic covenant. And then we can go to the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. We see similar references. Your children shall come back to their own border. Or Ezekiel uh, 37 in the great valley of dry bones passage. We see that he will bring them back into their own land. And uh, so, in fact... Uh, if we look at the end of the book of Ezekiel, and we start with these the New Covenant passages in chapters 36 and 37, we see the land emphasized. So it starts with chapter 36 and the reference there to the New Covenant. Then you have the Valley of Dry Bones, and then, of course, Gog and Magog in 38 and 39, all culminating with the Millennial Temple. Well, what's that talking about? The land and, and the physical buildings and architecture in a physical foundation on the Temple Mount. And so it's still all about the land. And so, yes, God's covenant program is essentially Israel's title deed to the land, but it's, we see the development of God's grace very on in human history through Adam and Noah. And then, of course, we saw it through Abraham. I wanted to mention that all of these charts, I think I talked about this at the beginning, beginning are available in the Not By Works chart book, so if you're interested, you can come uh, check that out. But we see God's grace outlined in his unconditional covenant with Abraham and the three subsequent aspects of that foundational covenant, land, seed, and blessing, and they all culminate in Israel's future promised kingdom when Christ comes back and takes the throne. And when he does, Jesus said himself, that he will gather together his elect from the four winds in fulfillment of many, many Old Testament passages like Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, Isaiah 27, 13, and many others. So this will be Israel returning to the land in belief. The first time he came, the nation of Israel, its national leaders cried, crucify him, crucify him, even though there was a remnant of believers who he cried, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But as Jesus said in Matthew 23, the next time, uh, he, he said, you won't see me again until you cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Fulfillment of Psalm 118, that messianic psalm. And uh, this is what Paul is talking about, by the way, in Romans 10. And he quotes Joel 2.32, that second coming passage, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered into the kingdom. How can they call, how can they, the nation of Israel, call on him in whom they have not first believed? And how can they believe without a preacher? So that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So before the nation of Israel can receive the ultimate expression of God's grace and the new covenant blessings in the kingdom, they must first individually believe the gospel. And the next time he comes, they will crown him king of kings and lord of lords, but they will be supernaturally regathered into the land in belief. So we see not only grace developed, but as we continue the journey, we see grace displayed again and again and again. After Abraham comes Moses, right? Even during Israel's ups and downs, we saw it. But here in Exodus 33, uh, you have found grace in my sight. And then during the wilderness, 
the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Even when Israel was disobedient in Canaan, nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. God graciously provided judges to help them as they battled the surrounding pagan enemies in the ancient Near East. Nevertheless, you know, nevertheless is, is frequently used in Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, to indicate a display of God's amazing grace. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. It would be an interesting study uh, to do sometime. And there were no shortage of neverthelesses in Israel's journey. Nevertheless, 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 God never uh, forsook them utterly. So even during Israel's years of captivity in Assyria and Babylon, God's grace was on display. Ezra writes, and now for a little while grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us a remnant to escape and to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. And through the prophet Zechariah's oracles during his post-exilic ministry, we see visions of God's amazing grace being poured out on Israel one day. You know, the whole process of, of temple restoration, this is the context here of Zechariah, seemed like an impossible task to the few Jews that had returned from ex exile. Nevertheless, God will help Israel by reducing the mountain to a flat plain, making it easier for his workers. And when the final stone on the project is put in place, shouts of grace, grace to it will echo across the Holy Land. Hallelujah. What a day that will be. And don't forget the verse right before this verse that reminds us that the ultimate inauguration of Israel's promised kingdom will be not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And what spirit is that? The spirit of grace that we talked about at the beginning as Zechariah describes it in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Centuries after Zechariah, as Israel was in bondage, not to Assyria or Babylon, but to Rome in the first century, Paul reminds us that God's grace was on display yet again. God did not cast away his people even when they crucified their Messiah. I mean, think of it. That's amazing. Uh, even so, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And, of course, in modern times, uh, when many within the church thought Israel's days were over, I mean, you have to imagine that for some, you know, 1,800 years, give or take, you know, you opened your Rand McNally map and there's, there's not an Israel on there. I mean, think about it. Israel was like a, you know, to, to my grandfather and people, or great-grandfather and people before them, it was like an ancient city that secular atheists thought was a mythical city, but those of us who believe the Bible is the Word of God says, no, they may not have found the archaeological site now, but we know it exists because God's Word said it exists. And then all of a sudden, May 15th, 1948, here's the headline from the Palestine Post, which uh, changed its name in 1950 to the Jerusalem Post that says the state of Israel is born. Talk about grace, grace displayed. So we see grace displayed throughout Israel's history, and then we see grace delivered based on the promises of a God who cannot lie and his unconditional promise a blessing. We can count on the fact that grace will deliver all that it has promised, and not just for Israel, but as we saw in that unconditional promise to Abraham, it has implications for the whole world. You know, Peter reminds us in 2 Peter 3, nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're all heirs of that promise. You know, in Scripture, we see four seeds of Abraham. Obviously, there's the natural seed, which are physical descendants of Abraham, basically ethnic Jews. For example, Romans chapter 9, uh, Paul speaks of my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. But then we see the natural spiritual seed of Abraham, which are believing descendants of Abraham. In other words, Jews who've gotten saved. They've believed the gospel. Going back to Romans 9, Paul talks about that they are not all Israel who, Israel who are of Israel. Therefore, in Galatians, he says that those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. That's the natural spiritual seed. But then, as we read on in God's word, we find there's a spiritual seed of Abraham. That is, non-Jews who believe the gospel and receive the free gift of eternal life. Believing Gentiles, Galatians 3 
If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And then, of course, ultimately, Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham. Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, and he does not say into seeds as to many, but as of one, and to your seed who is Christ. The only way to make sure that you're a seed of Abraham and co-heirs with Christ of God's promise is by faith. Again, apart from Christ, we are strangers from the covenants of promise. But by faith in Christ, we become part of that ultimate fulfillment there in the kingdom. And we'll be serving and ruling and reigning with Christ and different roles to play in the kingdom. You know, a lot of times um, Christians, maybe not so much in our studied crowd, but you know, your average Christian thinks of the eternal dwelling place of the redeemed as heaven. And they really don't even have a good theology of, of heaven. Um, they think about heaven based on Hollywood movies as sort of this nebulous place where we sort of you know, float around in the clouds singing Kumbaya or something like that. Uh, but ultimately, heaven really, even though we say you go to heaven when you die, what, we're, what we ultimately understand according to scripture is that the final dwelling place of the redeemed is the new heavens and the new earth. And we're going to have a lot to do there. That's what Jesus was talking about in, in Luke 19 in the parable of delay, when he reminds the disciples who thought the kingdom was going to come immediately, they thought Jesus was going to ride into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey and throw off the shackles of Rome and inaugurate the final promised kingdom. And uh, Jesus is not so fast. Uh, there's still some work to be done. The cross comes before the crown, you know. And, uh, and so he says, be busy while I'm gone. And when I come back, then I'm going to reward you with stewardships based upon how faithful you were while I'm gone. And it's an allusion there to uh, the church age. And so someday when, when Christ comes back, we will be ruling and reigning. Remember, Jesus promised the disciples they would sit on 12 thrones with him. Uh, Peter was frequently obsessed with what he's going to get in the kingdom. One of the disciples' moms, remember, asked if her sons could sit on either side of Jesus in the kingdom. And, uh, of course, if you don't take the Bible literally, then all of that really, it's hard to find a place to put that. Uh, I guess Jesus was just speaking code language or something there. But no, he meant literally. In fact, as you trace kingdom language from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you never find even the slightest hint that it was anything but literal. There's no hint that it was metaphorical or spiritualized. It would make no sense. And even, even on the day of ascension, you know, 40 days after the resurrection on uh, the mountain as Jesus ascends to the right hand of the throne of God, the throne in waiting, by the way, not David's throne, but the throne in waiting. Uh, the disciples at that moment still were obsessed with the kingdom and they wanted to know, well, are you finally going to, you know, inaugurate the kingdom, Lord? Has the time finally come? You know, I, I've often kind of thought that was almost like it had to be a humorous picture, a moment, because, you know, Jesus, of course, had predicted and talked about his death more and more explicitly as his three-and-a-half-year ministry went on, and yet the disciples still missed it. They were so obsessed with the kingdom. Uh, and, of course, his ministry had begun with references to the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand, and he preaches the parables about the kingdom, and he talks a lot about the kingdom. So we understand they were certainly interested in it. He is, after all, the Messiah, uh, the long-awaited king. But nevertheless, they still should have understood God's plan. It was predicted in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 and even Daniel 9 and other passages, yet they missed it. And so I kind of thought, think of that moment as a time when the disciples and Jesus are gathered together and they say, basically, and I'm paraphrasing here, I can't prove this from Scripture, but I imagine it went something like this. So, Lord, we're so sorry, you know, that we, we missed this whole suffering servant Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world aspect of your ministry. Um, and thank you for that, by the way. You know, thank you for saving the whole world from the penalty of sin. But uh, now on to more important matters. Is it finally time for the kingdom to come? Are you going to restore the kingdom now? Is it? And that would have been really the perfect time for Jesus to dispel the notion of a literal kingdom. If, in fact, as so many today teach... It was never intended to be literal. Right then, he could say, you silly disciples, come on. Haven't you figured it out yet? Haven't you read you know, John Piper? It's not going to be literal. <laughs> it's going to be metaphorical. But he didn't say that. He didn't. In fact, he affirmed the literal nature of the kingdom by saying it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. 
right? Just get back to Jerusalem, be busy, and wait. And then, of course, you read through the epistles and the progress of Revelation, you see frequent references to an eager anticipation of that coming kingdom. And, uh, and then we have, as God unveils more of his plan, we begin to understand the twofold nature of his coming, the rescue of the church before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath, and then the ultimate coming in wrath and fury to tread the winepress of and fury of the wrath of Almighty God at the second coming in Revelation 19. Uh, so by faith, we're part of this picture. We have different roles to play, but the ultimate dwelling place is going to be a kingdom. When, as Jesus said in Matthew 8, people will come from the east and the west, Gentiles, to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In Ephesians 2, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, we who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And for those who are heirs to this promise of grace, we need to rest our hope fully upon the grace that will be delivered ultimately at the return of Christ. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Grace, grace. The writer of Hebrews reminds us, this is the passage that uh, Andy mentioned just earlier today, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. We are not in the kingdom today. It's a future tense thing. And anybody that looks around at the world we live in today and thinks that it even remotely approximates the description of God's word about the coming kingdom is, is utterly blind. It's nonsensical. I mean, are the governments upon his shoulders today? Do we see perfect peace and righteous and justice? Not, nothing about the world today. I'll tell you what it resembles is it resembles a satanic tyrannical world government rapidly approaching that, which as we've been all talking about at this conference, are just a setting of the stage and the signs of the times that someday and possibly soon the Lord's going to rescue us from the coming wrath and this Antichrist is going to take over. That's the picture we see today, but we need to keep the ultimate picture ever before us, that we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And we need to remember the role is replacing that. So he says, let us have grace. Let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and fear. So one day, grace will be delivered. Count on it. Just as God's grace remained even when Israel was rebellious, so too can believers rest in God's grace with the confident assurance that he will deliver us safely into the eternal kingdom because we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last times, 1 Peter 1, 5. Have you ever stopped to consider that the final two verses in the Bible make reference to both the return of Christ and to grace? Have you ever connected eschatology with grace before? You should. Look at what we read. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly, right? Amen, even so come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So as we think about Israel and God's plan of the ages, there we have it. Grace defined, grace developed, grace displayed, one day grace delivered. What we observe is grace all over the place in Israel as the perfect picture of God's grace in our own individual lives. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this reminder. And Lord, we pray if there is one here within the sound of my voice, either, either, either in the room or possibly watching this on video someday, that right now, if, if they don't know you, your spirit would convict them of their sin and their need for a savior. And in simple, childlike faith, they would trust in your son and our savior, who alone can offer the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life. We pray that today would be the day of salvation as they receive that gift. And Lord, for those of us who know you, we pray that we would ever be mindful, eagerly waiting uh, for the return of your son uh, and looking forward to the consummation of your ultimate, unconditional, gracious, gracious program. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to I mention just a couple of things before we uh, take some questions. I don't know, do we need to... Forego the questions, or are we going to try to still have some? Okay.
So uh, our two latest books, one of them is all about grace. It's called The Top Ten Reasons. Some people go to hell and the one reason no one ever has to. And it's essentially just a, another angle at coming at the gospel. It's both an apologetic for skeptics and people that don't know the Lord. In the preface, I actually talk directly to someone who might be reading the book that doesn't know the Lord. But it's also a great tool for believers to help us understand where people are coming from and what is it that might cause someone to resist receiving the free gift. And then uh, the other book that also came out during this pandemic time is a simple devotional book. I call it 52 uh, Devotionals to Warm Your Heart and Strengthen Your Faith, Weekly Words of Life. Uh, you can read each one of these. They're just a couple pages in, in just a minute or two. But the encouragement is to read it every week for a year, each devotional. Read it every day that week. And it's, it allows the Word of God to really build into your heart and your life. And then don't forget, we still have a few of the Spirit of the Antichrist uh, DVD sets available out there based on kind of the summary that I gave in our first session of that 14-hour set. And by the way, thank you so much for just being so kind and gracious and, and coming by the booth and picking up some of our stuff. It really means a lot uh, to us and just really, really blessed by the reception that we've had uh, this year. And then for, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter article. And also we have tons of resources from, again, 32 years of ministry available at the Not By Work site many of them free, podcasts, DVDs, and so forth, or videos, and so forth. But we also have an online store where you can go buy books, not only by myself, but other like-minded uh, teachers. So thanks for letting me share that. Okay. Yes, sir. Three questions. We'll do three questions. So we want the three best questions. So we'll take the most humble one first. Here we go. So it's all in the present. You got it. It's not three questions. I have one question with three parts. There you go. There you so. go. <laughs> all right. A lot of good stuff, David. I appreciate you. you know, we've loved you back quite a few years. Yeah. Ago. So good seeing you again. Um, so I know the problem with Christianity a lot of times is the reason why there are so many Christians against the Jews is because there's not biblical teaching on the role of Israel in the future. I really believe that. I think if Christian pastors would do more due diligence, so we'd have a lot more problems with anti-Semitism, anti-Zionism. That's just my statement. Okay. All right. Get that out of the way. All right. The other point here is that in the uh, Gog and Magog, you believe that that war is going to be, I think you believe it's going to be after the rapture, but will it be, will the Antichrist sign the seven-year peace agreement and then there will be the Gog and Magog war or you think Gog and Magog well, that's a great question, and um, you know, as I think Andy mentioned, a lot of scholars have debated this. I think in my book, What Lies Ahead, a biblical overview of end times prophecy, which is a comprehensive treatment of all eschatology that I've taught for 15 years at a school, a seminary, and a college, I have a chapter on it, and I list eight views, and there's probably more than that. So, um, so, but fortunately. For you all, God revealed to me where it really fits in a bowl of in a bowl of pasta last night here at this very hotel, and so you'll be glad to know. Now, I my best guess, and if you look at our appendix at the back of that book on sequential order of end times events, my best guess is that it happens after the rapture, but prior to the start of the tribulation. So I take it that it's sort of a setup that propels the future Antichrist into world fame. And, and, and the peace treaty is signed, and that starts the clock ticking. So we, we notice that we, we uh, understand there's a gap of time between the rapture and the official start of the tribulation of unknown length of time. I tend to agree with Dr. Ice that it's probably years, uh, but uh, some people, I think Arnie Fruchtenbaum thinks it's seven years, if I'm not mistaken. Um, could be months, but however long it is, uh, I, I put Gog and Magog there, but that's my best guess. Two more questions. One over here. My question is concerning the time period between the rapture and the assignment of heaven. Can you give some foundation for 
So it's a, an inference from Scripture. Now, I think last night there was a question that Dr. Ice was fielding, and I was sitting listening, and I think there was a little bit of miscommunication going on because it sounded like the person was asking about that very thing, but uh, they asked about a 75-day interval between the rapture and the start of the tribulation. There's no such reference in Scripture that speaks of a 75-day interval. What that references to is the gap of time after the second coming prior to the start of the millennial phase of the kingdom, and that's based on Daniel's you know, 35 day and then another 40 a day or 30 days and another 45 days and so forth. As far as the time between the rapture and the official start of the tribulation, that's an inference based on one simple fact. The rapture and the signing of the peace treaty are two separate events. If they're two separate events, by definition, there must be some length of time before them. There's no indication in scripture that the signing of the peace treaty happens precisely at the moment of the rapture. So that being the case, since they're two separate events, of necessity, there must be some time between them. The Bible is silent on how much time that will be. We can look at passages, you know, that, that could speculate, like, for example, Gog and Magog and, and so forth, but, uh, but there's definitely a gap because this tribulation starts not with the rapture, it starts with the signing of the peace treaty. The rapture has already happened before that because the church is not going to be here during that uh, final seven years of God's wrath. So it's an inference. I think it's an accurate one but we don't know uh, how long that gap of time will be. It has to be some gap of time, but we don't know how long. Somebody else? One last question. Over here. So uh, what you touched on today is God gave grace to Israel as well. But could you kind of touch just briefly on that concept that there's not two ways of being saved, but it's not a church way and an Israel way? Absolutely. Yeah, so there's absolutely only one way to be saved from Genesis till the end of time, and that is by grace through faith. Um, the charge that dispensationalism teaches two ways of salvation arose uh, based on a note in the original Schofield Reference Bible, and I remember my PhD studies, we had to go back and read every note in the original, and then every note in the edited, I think it was Walbert that did the, the revision of the Schofield Study Bible, and kind of point out some of the differences, and that was a helpful uh, revision in that regard, because it was a little sloppily stated by Schofield in the first one, where it could be misread as him suggesting there were two different ways of salvation. But that's not true. God's grace has always been uh, appropriated by faith. Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him righteous. So as Charles Ryrie has pointed out, over the progress of Revelation, the precise content of saving faith has changed as God revealed more and more of his uh, plan. But it's always by faith. And today, in the present age, we have the unequivocal and unmistakable, very clearly articulated content of saving faith in 1 Corinthians 15 and elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 1, uh, that explains that it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So you can state the gospel today in 10 words or less. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. That's what must be believed in order to have eternal life. But it's always by faith, by faith, by faith. Okay, well, thank you guys very much, and uh, we'll see you outside. <laughs>